Well, good morning again, Coastal. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to be, and if you do not uh, own a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you, and we would love for you to take that one home, uh, to read it, and by God's grace be changed by it. Luke chapter 7, it's, uh, we are wrapping up our eight-week series called Go Coastal, where we've been really um, challenging one another um, to be obedient in this uh, task that the Lord has left us here for, which is uh, to reach every tribe, every tongue, and every nation with Jesus Christ, uh, for uh, the glory of Jesus Christ. And so um, this morning, we're going to... Um, I'm going to look at uh, kind of Jesus' approach to two different types of people. We're approaching uh, the holidays very quickly, right? 2018's really blown by, but we're approaching Thanksgiving, and right after that, we're going to be celebrating Christmas, and some of the department stores, uh, I think even before um, uh, November arrived, were already advertising for Christmas, and I'm not one of those people that mind that. I like celebrating Christmas as much as possible, so I get kind of geeked up about that, but... Uh, when the holidays come around, we have, we're going to have this opportunity to practice what it is that we see Jesus doing um, here, or at least practice the spirit of what it is that we see Jesus doing in our passage this morning. Jesus uh, is at a, a, an awkward dinner party, is what we see. And if you've never been at an awkward dinner party, it's probably because you're the awkward one. Um, <laughs> But Jesus is at this awkward dinner party, and it's not that, that he's awkward or that he's uncomfortable, but if, if, if we were put in the same position that, that Jesus is put in here, we would be awkward and uncomfortable. You have in this story this self-righteous skeptic who's invited Jesus over with ulterior motives. Uh, maybe he wants to be um, entertained by the wild claims of Jesus Christ. Or maybe this skeptic wants the, the spotlight with associating with such a polarizing and popular um, person in the culture at this time. But it's clear that, that he doesn't believe Christ's claims about himself. So, so the dinner party that Jesus is at, he, it's not about hospitality. Okay, it, it's not about this, this guy inviting Jesus over so that he can worship him. It's not an act of kindness. It's probably a, a trap or an ambush. Or the best case scenario, it's an evening of, of, of entertainment. Right? Many of you have been to dinner parties or maybe you've hosted dinner parties like this. You get fed, you get questions, you get accused, and then you leave and then you do it all over again next year. And then there's this lady there too, right? Not just the skeptic, but there's this lady there. She's, she's a sinner. And as is custom, not only is she a sinner, but she's poor. And, and in the first century here, the poor, the beggars, the sinners, they were invited to these prestigious gatherings, these prestigious dinners, so that they could clean up the, the scraps of food like a dog, so this woman in our passage, she's, she's present for this, but she's really at this dinner party to see Jesus. Right? She needs to see Jesus. She needs to worship Jesus. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at how it is that Jesus ended up at this awkward dinner party 
And, and I want to take note of exactly how it is that he interacts with the people at this party. And so I'm looking at Jesus this morning as our example, uh, much the same way that the, the Apostle Paul looks at Jesus as our example in Philippians chapter 2. But I don't want it to be lost on us this morning that Jesus is God. Right? He's not just our example. Jesus is God. And, and we have to hold that in our minds as we work through our text this morning. And, and Lord willing, We'll see that because the physician Luke, who, who wrote, uh, documented this account here, he uses this passage to teach us that Jesus is the only one who has the authority to forgive sins. It's the only one. And so look with me, Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 36 through 50. I'm going to pray, and then I have five points. I'm going to spend most of my time on the first three points, and I'm going to move quickly through the last two points this morning. But this is the word of the Lord, as Luke documents it here, says this. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he, Simon, answered, say it, teacher. And Jesus said, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, for I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who's forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it's been preserved. It's been documented here by the physician Luke so that we can look at it and by the power of your Holy Spirit be changed because of it. So Lord, I pray this morning, God, that you would give us humble hearts. God, that you would use your word to save the lost and build your church. And God, I pray you'd help me to enjoy what it is that I'm preaching. God, that you would help this congregation enjoy what it is that they're hearing. Lord, your word is living and active, and so God, we, we need your help to adjust our lives according to what it says. So help us, Lord. And thank you for this time we had together in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now, the first thing that I want us to see, and really what I'm going to spend a lot of time on this morning, is this. Jesus, he was approachable. Jesus was approachable. Again, we're looking at Jesus as our example this morning, not just as our Savior. But in verse 36, says, one of the Pharisees, Simon, as the Pharisee asked him to eat with him, and Jesus accepted the invitation. He went, went to the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. Jesus, he was warm. Jesus was kind. And Jesus couldn't be accused of, of dining with just the, the, the so-called sinners or the publicans. Jesus sat with hard-hearted religious leaders as well. The, the Pharisee's name, as you see in our text, his name was Simon. And Jesus, he, 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 he knew Simon's motives. He's God. So, of course, he knew Simon's motives. He, he knew Simon's hard-heartedness, and he knew that he wasn't being invited over so that he could be worshipped. See, Simon the Pharisee, he had an agenda, right? And that agenda was to put Jesus on the hot seat. It was to put Jesus on the hot seat. It was to make Jesus answer a few questions. It was, it was, it was to make Jesus stumble so that he could discredit Jesus' ministry and Jesus' testimony about himself. Right? Simon, at the best case scenario, he wanted to be entertained by the preposterous claims of Christ. Right? Simon knew exactly who Jesus was claiming to be. Right? Jesus wasn't claiming to be some good moral teacher. Right? I don't even understand cults that come to that conclusion. Right? Even Simon, this hard-hearted Pharisee, knew that Jesus was claiming to be more than a moral man. He was claiming to be more than some good teacher. Right? He heard the stories. He heard the, the sermons. He heard the testimonies. Christ was claiming to be the Messiah. Right? Christ was claiming to be the Son of God, and, and, and Simon wanted to hear this, this far-fetched claim for himself. It was, it was amusing to him. It was amusing to him. He was, he was intellectually curious about Jesus. Some of you in this morning are intellectually curious about Jesus, and it just stops there. So he invites Jesus over, and Jesus accepts the invitation. Jesus was kind. Jesus was approachable. And as Christians, right, we, we need to model this, don't we? You see, if the Father accomplished our salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ and applied it to our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, our Christian journey from then on should be one of conforming more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Right? In other words, if Christ is our Savior, we should also seek to be like Him. Not out of this religious duty, but because our hearts have been captivated by the gospel. Right, and, and in this passage of Scripture, in Luke chapter 7, to be like Christ is to be approachable. It's to be approachable. Right, some of us aren't being invited over to places 
because we aren't approachable, right? Some of us aren't kind. Some of us aren't warm. And this isn't a, a, a personality issue. Right? This is a, a failure to conform to the image of Christ in this particular area of our lives. It's as if we're saying this part of our lives is off limits. You can't have this part, Lord. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3.15 says this. If you've been in church life for any length of time, you've heard this. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You see, this, this entire series is on evangelism, right? And some of us aren't evangelizing because we aren't approachable. It's as simple as that. In this passage, in 1 Peter, what we tend to do is, is we zoom in on his charge to be ready to make a defense. And we zoom in really closely, right? Some of us are really good at arguing, some of us are really good at debating, and if you don't think that that's the case, just ask your spouse. We're on attack, and unfortunately, we often miss the entirety of this passage of Scripture. The Apostle Peter says, we give a defense to those who ask us for a reason for the hope that is in us. Right? What, what, what Peter's assuming here is that someone will notice that you live your life with Christian hope. Right? And if you're living your life with Christian hope, it seems, according to this passage, that someone will feel comfortable enough to approach you and ask you about it. And then when they ask you about it, the Christian hope when they ask you about that Christian hope that you're exuding, it will overflow. That Christian hope will overflow into giving your defense of the Christian gospel with both gentleness and respect. And we stink at this as Christians. I discussed this with the Gloucester campus two weeks ago when I preached there, but I fear that as Christians, we, we've really become a defensive people. And not, not only are we defensive, but we're defensive about the wrong things. Right, let me give you an example. Right, we, we just went through a, a, another round of voting this past Tuesday. I went there. Well, politics for many of us Christians is, is the heat that draws out the worst in us, isn't it? Right? It, it makes us very unapproachable. And I'm friends with many of you on, on social media. And let me just say that some of us in this room this morning are so consumed with identity politics that you're hindering your ability to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And let me make this practical for you. Are the things that you're discussing on social media giving people a reason to ask you for the Christian hope the Christian gospel that's within you. Right? And, and, and it's not just about politics, is it? Think through the things that, that dominate your thinking, that dominate your conversations. And here's a very practical challenge for you. Just go through the last two weeks of your social media account. 
what are you talking about? What are you posting? What are you arguing about? Because I can tell you that's probably the thing that you're worshiping. And some of you don't have social media pages. Good on you. But you may need to think through body posture. Right? You, are you making eye contact with people? Are you sending signals that you're open to speak with other people? Or are you closed off? Are you kind to waiters and waitresses? Are you hard, honest employees? Are you hard, honest employers? Do you do your work without grumbling? Do you know your neighbors? Do your neighbors know you? What do your neighbors think of you? The bottom line is, is the way that we're living our lives sending a signal, a message to other people that we're approachable? Because to be approachable is a Christ-like quality. Approachability really is a Christ-like quality, and it's one that we never give any consideration to. If we gave more consideration to it, we wouldn't have to have sermons like this, right? So are you approachable? Jesus was approachable. Secondly, we see in our text that Jesus sat with the humble. He sat with the humble. We see verses 37 through 38, it says, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at, ta- at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Then on down in verse 44, Jesus turns toward the woman and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. This woman is known by Luke as a woman of the city who was a sinner. That's what, that's what we know here. And the, the Greek word that Luke uses for sinner here, he uses throughout his writings to describe gross immorality. Gross immorality. And Jesus even says later on in our text that her sins are many. And so it's, a probably, it's probably a very good guess to say this woman was some type of prostitute. But while we aren't sure of who this lady was, right, she is well known in the city. She's poor, she's a sinner, she knew it, others knew it. Yet the Holy Spirit granted this woman so much humility that she did an act that was out of custom, right? She did this undignified act here, this, this, this embarrassing act at a prestigious uppity dinner party. Right? She laid at Jesus' feet. And she wept over his feet. She, she cleaned his feet with, with her own hair. She kissed his feet. She anointed his feet with ointment. And this woman was probably, she was probably converted under the, the, the preaching ministry of Jesus. Her love here was an, just an overflow of a heart that was already taken captive by the gospel. Her tears were tears of joy. Right? She knew that although her sins were, were, were many, her Savior, whom she touched in this moment, was so much greater than her sins. Her actions, her actions were this overflow of her faith 
in Christ Jesus. Now, I certainly, we could spend an entire sermon just talking through, working through the authenticity of this lady's faith, right? But Pastor Sean spent the last few weeks talking about heart posture. And I don't think I can improve on what he said, so check those sermons out. But what I want you to see is that Jesus, he didn't care about this woman's reputation. He couldn't care less about that. Right? He, didn't, he didn't think about what others thought of her. He didn't think about what others thought of her worship of him. Right? He cared about her soul. And Jesus cared about her soul. And it was, it was in fact, a, a, a gift from him that allowed this woman to express her worship in the way that we see her express it in Luke chapter 7 here. Right? And Jesus intended for Simon the Pharisee and his Pharisee pals here to see the difference between a heart that's been captivated by the gospel and a heart that's hardened. And Jesus, he didn't prevent this woman from coming to him, right? The gospel is far-reaching, right? The gospel is for people of every socioeconomic class. The gospel is for every, every political party, every, people from every political party, people from every cultural background. The gospel is for the learned and for the unlearned, the rich and the poor, and great big messed up sinners like this woman, like you, like me. The gospel is for people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. The gospel is far-reaching. It's far-reaching. If you identify with this woman this morning, your sin has not disqualified you from approaching your Savior, Christ Jesus. You're not too far gone. You're not too far gone. Your sin is not too great because we serve a Savior who's so much greater than your sin. The gospel's far-reaching. Now, this woman was humble, right? And I suspect that as Christians, we don't have a difficult time ministering to those who are humble. I don't have a difficult time ministering to those that are humble. What I have a difficult time ministering to are those that are hard-hearted, right? And there's another person in this, at this dinner party, right? The host. And we see that Jesus, if you're taking notes, he sat with the hard-hearted and the skeptical, He didn't just sit with the humble. He sat with the hard-hearted, and he sat with the skeptical. And we see verse 39. We see the hard-heartedness of Simon when he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And then you see in verse 49 the conclusion that the Pharisees come to or more of just another question. Who is this? When Jesus forgives the woman's sins, they say, who is this that he, he, he dare think that he can forgive her sins? The audacity of that guy. And in this passage, we see Simon and we see his Pharisee pals come to three conclusions about Jesus. These are the conclusions. If he were a prophet, he would know what kind of sinner this woman is. That's conclusion number one. Conclusion number two they came to. If, if Jesus knew what kind of sinner this woman was, he wouldn't let, him, uh, let her touch him. He wouldn't let her touch him. And then the third conclusion they come to is since he, he's letting her touch him, he must not be a prophet, so we shouldn't acknowledge him as a prophet. It's the progression of their hard-heartedness in this passage, right? 
Listen, Jesus didn't isolate himself to just those people who would receive him. He didn't. Right? He didn't insulate himself. And it's where, if, if this is a sermon about being more Christ-like, we can't insulate ourselves from people who are hard-hearted. We've got to learn. We, we really need to develop thick skin as Christians. And Christians are some of the thinnest skin people I've ever met. We need to learn to cope with rejection. We need to learn to cope with hostility. We need to stop taking everything so stinking personal. There are times in Scripture that that the Lord actually calls His... Actually, most of the, the prophets of the Old Testament, most of their ministry was one of preaching to hard hearted people. Did you know that? In Isaiah chapter 6, if you're familiar with that, and you see uh, uh, Isaiah uh, enters the, the throne, he has this vision, enters the throne room of God as he draws closer to the Lord, he realizes his own sinfulness, he sees the seraphim uh, that are flying, that are covering their eyes, that are covering their feet, that are declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and, and Isaiah confesses his sin, confesses that he lives amongst the people who are unsinned. The Lord graciously purifies him. And then the Lord says uh, in uh, verse 8, he says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah eagerly says, Lord, he, here am I, right? What? Send me. Here am I. Send me. And then here, here's, here's the part that we don't, uh, we don't uh, continue to read, that we don't know about. Here, here's the message. He said, okay, here's, here's the message. This is what I want you to say, Isaiah. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they actually see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And Isaiah says, how, how long do I have to do this? Let me, let me, re, let me rethink uh, this just a little bit. So he says, how long, Lord, how, how long do I have to say this? And then the Lord answers him, be careful what you ask for, right? Says, and he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, and like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it has failed the holy seed. Is it stump? That's Isaiah's ministry. Gets that call and does that for the rest of his life. Think of John the Baptist in the New Testament. Right, I find that we can, we can talk about God's Word real, like very loftily, like up high, but when we talk about how God's Word should intersect with your life, right, how it should change our lives, that's when people really begin to get ticked off. Wow, I didn't know that that doctrine meant that I needed to do X, Y, Z. Um, John the Baptist, when he began to talk about the application of God's Word to Herod, about how he shouldn't be sleeping with his brother Philip's wife? What happened? Chopped his head off. End of John the Baptist. It's a real encouraging sermon this morning, right? Listen, we're not prophets. Prophets don't exist anymore, but we are heralds of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it seems 
that it's God's intent for us to herald the gospel to both the soft and the hard-hearted. Both of them. Isaiah's ministry was one of announcing God's word to those who would reject the message. John the Baptist's ministry, when he announced God's word, he announced it to some people that not only rejected it, but they also followed it through with killing him. Right, if God's word never returns void, right? We know that passage of scripture. We probably quote it all the time, Isaiah 55, 11. And if God's word never returns void, that means when we herald it, it's doing something. Right now, as you're hearing me preach and read God's word, it's doing something to you. When we announce the gospel to, to, to soft-hearted people, they respond with repentance and faith. When we announce the gospel, when we proclaim the glories of the word to hard-hearted people, they respond with righteous indignation or with hostility. Both are God's plan. Both, in both cases, we see God's word doing something, either hardening someone or softening someone. God's accomplishing his plan through his church as we announce, as we herald the good news of the gospel. Now, we may ask, is God really hardening people? And the answer is yes. He's sovereign. The Apostle Paul deals with this in Romans 9, verses 15 through 18. He says this, For he, speaking of God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh... For this reason, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, speaking of God, has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now some of us may be saying, well, that's not fair that God would also harden hearts, right? And Paul answers this objection. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist God's will? This is Paul's answer. And if it's Paul's answer, that means the Holy Spirit inspired him to write it. He says this, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? God is absolutely sovereign over the heart posture of his people. Absolutely sovereign. And we can't pick and choose who we announce the gospel to. We cannot. That is not our choice to make. All right, our job is, is, is very simple. God's made it very simple for us. It's, it, it's to herald the good news of the gospel to both hard and soft hearts with gentleness and respect. That's the way that we're to do it. So think of those hard-hearted people that are in your life, right? The, the, the loud-mouth relatives that you're getting ready to spend time with that have no filter that go on and on about what's wrong with the world these days and crude joking and fill the list. Or maybe for some of you, it could be your sons and your daughters who've they've abandoned the Christian faith and they've embraced the, 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 the culture's ethics and worldview and they're angry and they're defensive. Right? The Lord has sovereignly put those people in our lives. 
And if he's put those people in your lives, I heard Pastor David say this at a Gloucester campus, and I've used it twice already. Third time I can claim it as my own, but if the Lord has put these people in your life, no one is more equipped to, to herald the good news of the gospel to them than you. No one. No, no preacher, pastor, teacher, no one is more equipped to announce the good news of the gospel to the people in your life than you. That's why God has put them in your life and not in my life. So we have to be a present in the lives of the people that the Lord's entrusted to us. So how do we do this practically? How do we begin to get in this mindset? A few things. First and foremost, we need to think of ourselves as the chief of sinners. The Apostle Paul did, right? The Apostle Paul called himself the chief of sinners, right? You're not better than the humble. You're not better than the hard-hearted. And if you, when those temptations, those times where we begin to compare ourselves to other people, when we begin to believe the delusion that we're better than them, we're actually worse than them. Think of yourself as the chief of sinners. Secondly, remember how gracious God was to save your, save your soul and soften your heart, right? You do not deserve your salvation, I do not deserve my salvation. Three, reach out to hard-hearted individuals in your life. A text, a phone call, a letter, an email. Just let, let them know that you're thinking about them and that you love them. If love's too strong a word, start with like. Start somewhere. Right. Invite them over for dinner. Right? No, no agenda except to demonstrate your Christian hope to them. And if they're hard-hearted, understand that their rejection or their hostility isn't primarily against you. It's against the God who created them. Last two points, I'll go quicker. Fourth, Jesus didn't argue at the dinner table. I probably should have, but Jesus didn't argue at the dinner table and neither should you. I find that that's the most difficult thing for a man to do. So look at your wife as just like this. Hey, let, like pinch me when I'm getting out of control. Like some sort of signal, code word, something that you need to develop so that you can learn when to close your mouth. Now, Jesus didn't argue at the dinner table, and neither should you. Right? He's not hostile in this passage of Scripture. Right? Instead of, of, of meeting the hostility of the Pharisees thinking with his own hostility, he uses, Jesus uses this woman's humility and worship as an opportunity to, to teach Simon and to push Simon to a certain conclusion. Look with me, verse, uh, the second part of verse 41 to 43 says, he gives this, the parable here, a money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other owed 50. When they could not pay it, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answers, the one, I suppose, you can tell by him saying, I suppose that he's about to give this conclusion he doesn't want to give, right? The one, I suppose, from whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, you're, you're absolutely right. You've judged correctly, Simon. Well done. Right? Jesus, he's concerned about Simon's soul as well. And he leads Simon through this parable and follows it with a question that leads Simon to a conclusion that, that brings Simon face-to-face -face with his own self-righteousness. He didn't argue. Jesus wasn't hostile. He didn't yell. He aimed for Simon's heart, and he did it while reclining at a table. Fifth, those who need to be forgiven much are in a better position to receive Christ than those who need to be forgiven little. 
We should have both in our lives. We should have both in our lives. There's an account of a uh, well-educated, hard-hearted uh, man, um, a true story. He, he loved education. He was well-to-do. He was arrogant in his, his quest for knowledge and of his showcasing of that knowledge. And he was this, this, this pleasure seeker, food, sex, you name it. And his father was a pagan and an adulterer and promoted sexual immorality to a son from a very young age. And his mother was a Christian, and she suffered immensely at the hand of her unbelieving husband. She suffered graciously. She had several kids that died in infancy, and only three of those kids survived. She cried herself to sleep almost every night as she prayed for her son, who followed in the footsteps of his dad, her husband. She was surrounded by hard-hearted people. She didn't isolate herself from them. Right? She didn't isolate herself from the, the, the emotional hurt that they, they caused her. She prayed for them. She pursued them. She asked others to pray for them. Her husband became a Christian on his deathbed. She didn't get to enjoy the fruits of his, his life that was changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, but her husband became a Christian on his deathbed. Her son became a Christian at age 31. Her son was St. Augustine, a church father who most historians agree uh, is the second most influential person who ever lived behind the Apostle Paul, aside from Christ Jesus. You may not be influencing the next Augustine, but your faithfulness to both hard-hearted and humble people is having an impact, having this ripple effect that you do not see. So I'm encouraging you this morning to stay faithful. Stay faithful, persevere. Right? Pray for those in your life that are hard-hearted. Pray for those in your life that are humble. If you're able, open your home to them. Be willing to receive invitations to, to their home. Love the hard-hearted people in your life. Love those sinners that are in your life. Be committed to them. Love their souls. And I, I want to acknowledge that there's both of those types of people among us this morning. There's those of you that, that are humbled. There's those of you that are, are hard-hearted. Both of you need Jesus Christ. Both of you need Jesus. And there's a room full of people here this morning that would love to take that journey with you. Look with me in verse 48 through 50 here. Jesus says to her, he looks at her, the woman, the and I imagine in my mind that he looks at her with love and with compassion and he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Those at the table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he says to the woman, your faith has saved. And the Greek here is in the perfect tense. It's, a, it's an accomplished fact. There's nothing in addition that needs to be added. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Right? Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins because he's God, right? He's God incarnate. That's what Christmas is all about. He's God in flesh, and he took my sin, and he took your sin upon himself, and he obediently went to a cross, 
And God the Father poured out all his wrath on Jesus for sin for those who repent and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. No ounce of God's wrath is left for believers. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, three days later, Jesus bodily and eternally rose again from the grave. Is our Savior who's conquered sin. Our Savior who's crushed the head of the serpent. Our Savior who's reconciled us to our Creator. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gospel. And I thank you that it is finished as Jesus declared. And Lord, I pray that those that are hard-hearted, God, I pray you would make them uncomfortable until they express repentance and faith. I pray for the humble, God, that you would lift their head and that they would see that you're such a great Savior, so much greater than their sin. And Lord, I pray for my fellow brothers and sisters this morning, Lord, that we would be obedient in our announcing the good news of the gospel to people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, both hard-hearted and humbled, for your glory to accomplish your purposes. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.